Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. So today is week two of a series we're doing called Nucleus, What's at the Center? And this is a series that is a little different than what we kind of normally do for a series around here, because this is a series that's about us as a church. This is about what drives us and what guides us, why we exist as a church, what our purpose is. And it's really kind of about defining who we are and what we're doing together. And we're using this title nucleus because the definition of nucleus is the central and most important part of an object, group, or movement that forms the basis of its activity and its growth. And last week we talked about what is the church? Is it an object, a group, or a movement? And we talked about how the word that Jesus used when he talks about building his church and the word that's used throughout the rest of the New Testament every time one of the apostles writes about the church is this Greek word ekklesia, which means an assembly of people that are gathered or called for a purpose. And so when we look at this definition, we're understanding that as a church, this isn't about a church building or a church event, but the church is the people that are gathered for a purpose of what we're doing together. We're a movement of people focusing on something together. And when we talk specifically about who we are as a church, there's a statement that you'll hear every Sunday here because we always want to keep it at the forefront, where we talk about our mission being to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. And we use that to kind of encapsulate these two things that are so important in the church of evangelism and discipleship. And maybe these are words that are new to you. Maybe you haven't heard these words before. And so let me give you a quick definition. Evangelism is when we're sharing the good news about Jesus with everyone. And discipleship is teaching and helping people grow in their relationship with Jesus. And so last week we focused on the evangelism half. And today we're going to focus on discipleship. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be in a growing relationship with God And how do we do that? How do we do that on a regular basis? And so if you've been around churches for a while and you hear the topic of, oh, we're going to talk about discipleship, you might actually just want to check out at the moment because one of the sad truths about messages on discipleship is often they just turn into a giant to-do list. It turns into a, oh, we feel like, oh, we need to do better at this or I need to do this more or I have to schedule my life this way. And it becomes very task, do, 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 orientated. Or worse... Sometimes they just become a guilt trip. And we sit there listening to someone at the front talk about how they connect with God and we just think, well, that works for you, but that's not going to work for me. And that just makes me feel guilty. And so today, we want to do something a little different. And I want to start with this question. What is a zero guilt allowed approach to having a growing relationship with Jesus? How can we have a walk and a relationship with God in our faith but not let guilt become a motivator for it. Because I think guilt is actually one of the worst motivators that we can have. In fact, guilt will often get a short-term result, but in a longer-term time frame, we'll just reject it and say, no, I don't want to feel guilty. Guilt doesn't feel comfortable. Now, there's also a little distinction in guilt. Sometimes there's what would be known as an internal guilt. It's like an internal, I need to do something about. Sometimes there's a conviction piece in some area of your life, maybe it's work, maybe it's home, where you're like, I really need to do something about this. And that's different if it's internal. But an external is the form of guilt we're usually used to, where someone is trying to force us to think we have to do or act or be something, and we feel pressure from them to do or behave or act in a certain way. And that's the form of guilt that I really have an issue with. Because when I look at the whole New Testament, 
I actually don't see external guilt being used as a positive motivator. Guilt is actually not a good motivator for growing in our relationship. So what is a better way to look at this? What's a better approach to look at how do we have a growing relationship that doesn't require guilt or rely on guilt? Now, one of the things that it just is going to require right off the first bit is that living in a growing relationship with Jesus is still going to require choices and actions on our part. We're still going to have to make a decision. We're still going to have to make choices. But my hope is, is that those choices and decisions won't be motivated by guilt, but rather they'll be motivated by a desire. They'll be motivated for experiencing more of who Jesus is in our lives. And so that's kind of where we're going today. And I want to start by going back to the same passage of Scripture that we talked about last week. And this comes at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And so there's four accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of them were written to kind of tell this is who Jesus is and this is what he did. And the Gospel of Matthew includes this story of what happens after Jesus' death and resurrection. That Jesus was appearing to his disciples. And all the Gospels include that he was appearing to his disciples and he was talking to them. But Matthew focuses on this one occasion where Jesus tells his disciples to go to a certain place. And so we pick this up, Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. And I like that Matthew includes this little detail because some of the disciples were still trying to figure this out. What does this mean? Because they'd never seen someone come back to life the way that Jesus did before. This was changing their whole worldview that death was not final for Jesus. And so Jesus came and he told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. He's saying, I am in command. I have the authority of the Father. I have authority in heaven. I have authority on earth. And that is the basis upon which Jesus says what he says next. And he says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, we often refer to this passage as the Great Commission Because this is when Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go and do everything he had been training and teaching them to do. And so I want to back up in this this passage and unpack it a little bit. And so it starts with this in verse 19. He says, go and make disciples of all the nations. And that's the portion we looked at last week when we talked about evangelism. How do we share our faith in better ways? But I want to focus on the second part there. It says, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is where we get our basis of baptism from, that this is something that Jesus gave as an order to the church for something to do to mark and to recognize what is happening when we become a disciple. And I think it's significant that he says, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because he's saying you need to understand who God is. Because they lived in a deeply polytheistic culture. And what polytheistic means is that almost every person believed in a multitude of gods. And each of those gods would have domain over a certain thing or or a certain something. But what Jesus is telling his disciples and what he constantly told them is, no, no, God the Father is one. But he also taught them that God exists as three persons, as the Trinity, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when he's saying baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all you need to know is to recognize who God is. That's the baseline. 
Baptism is not a declaration that our lives are all figured out, that everything's good, that everything's wonderful. Baptism is a mark of saying, I'm on this journey of understanding and having a relationship with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so baptism is that outward declaration of what's happening inside of us. And then Jesus goes on and he says this. He says, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. Now, we read this passage and we just kind of carry on, but we don't realize how deeply controversial this statement is when Jesus said this. Because what Jesus is telling his disciples is that what he has taught them is what people need to know about God and how to be in a relationship with him. He's saying, you need to focus on what I have taught you and passing that on. Now, we think, okay, that's what a teacher should do. A teacher taught his disciples. The disciples are supposed to go on and teach other people what that teacher taught. But here's where it gets controversial, is they're all Jewish. That's their background. They know their Jewish law. In fact, if you have a Bible with you, the first like two-thirds is the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. And in that Old Covenant, there's a book called Leviticus right near the beginning. And Leviticus is the law that was given to Moses to govern the people. And so in their education system and growing up, they would constantly be taught and reinforced, this is the law. These are the rules. These are the structures that define who we are as a people and define who we are as a people, our relationship with God. Now, the law had its purposes and it had its good things about it, but the law was also not meant to be permanent. And this is what Jesus says when he says, teach these disciples to obey the commands that I have given you. Jesus is actually doing a work of replacement. And this shouldn't have been surprising to them, but this was something that the church wrestled with for many, many years. But if you go right back to one of the first things that Jesus taught, he actually sets up that he's going to do this but we sometimes miss it as well. And so if we go back to the beginning of Matthew, Matthew 5 is the first kind of really long time that Jesus spends teaching. And he's outside of Jerusalem. He's outside in this mountainous area. And we call it the Sermon on the Mountain. One of the first things that Jesus talks about this is he talks about his purpose. Why has he come? Why has God put on flesh and stepped into the world and come to teach? And Jesus says this in Matthew 5. He says, don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. Now, there's a word in there that in our English we get tripped up on, and that's abolish. Because we often think that abolish means to stop. Jesus is not saying, I didn't come to stop the law of Moses. In fact, the Greek word that he uses is better translated as to destroy or demolish. What Jesus says in this passage is he says, don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to destroy and wipe out from existence the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. See, what Jesus is saying is, is that the law was there for a purpose and for a reason. And he didn't come to wipe it out as if it never existed. It's always going to be there. But he came to accomplish what the law set out to do. And Jesus adds to this a a verse later. He says in Matthew 5, verse 20, he says, But I warn you, 
Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying here is a warning. He's saying if you want to rely on the law to have a relationship with God, you have to follow every single rule. There is no leeway. There is no bending it. There's no breaking it. There's no loopholes. Your righteousness has to be perfect. If you want to find a relationship with God through the law, you have to do everything. Now, that is a tall order. In fact, there's 660-some commands of the law. That's a lot of rules to follow. But again, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it. I didn't come to wipe it out. I came to accomplish its purpose. I came to fulfill it. And so when Jesus came and he taught and he willfully chose to go to the cross, in fact, if you look at his execution, you look at the crucifixion, Jesus is actually the one that's in control of the whole situation. He willfully chooses to sacrifice himself, knowing that he will rise from the dead, knowing that this completes the old covenant. And in fact, on the night before all that happened, when Jesus is sitting with his disciples, he takes the bread and the wine that we celebrate in communion, and we're going to have communion together on the 15th as part of our morning service. He takes the bread and the wine, and he says, this is the symbol of the new covenant that God is making with humanity. He says, this is, my, this is representative of my body and my blood that is poured out for many. And so Jesus was starting something new in this. And the church wrestled with this for a long time. What do we do with the law that we've been taught for so long? And later on, Paul, one of the apostles who was writing to churches that were often struggling with this question still, well, what do we do with our history? What do we do with our law? Do we follow that and follow Jesus? Do we just follow Jesus? What do we do? And, and Paul summarizes it this way. He says, Before the way of faith in Christ was available to us, we were placed under guard by the law. We were kept in protective custody, so to speak, until the way of faith was revealed. Let me put this another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. This is good news. This is what says we're not bound by the Old Testament law anymore. Now, the Old Testament still has its purposes. It still reveals who God is. I'm not saying don't read the Old Testament. Don't, don't take it that far. Because it still reveals who God is and what he does and tells us the story of everything that led up to when God stepped into the world in Christ. But you might be wondering, okay, Brian, what's going on here? Why are we talking about the law in a message about growing as a disciple of Jesus. Why, why do we take this, this detour into history and the law and the, the rule of law and the way of faith? Why are we doing this? There's a question we have to ask. And there's a question that the New Testament is seeking to answer. And the early church had to wrestle through and figure this out together of saying, how do we live and grow in the new covenant that Jesus created with humanity? How do we have a growing relationship with Jesus that isn't based on the rule of law from the Old Covenant? How do we have a relationship with Jesus that is based on the way of faith that he created for us, that was God's plan from the very beginning? In fact, it's promised in Genesis, in Genesis 12, 1-3, when God makes the first covenant 
with Abraham. And he talks about one day, all the nations on earth will be blessed through your descendants. God's promise was already pointing to Jesus back then. And so we have to understand there is a fundamental difference between living as a follower of God, living as a follower of Christ under the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, I'm going to borrow some terms that are actually taken from math. In 78, a guy that was kind of studying missiology, was studying how do we tell people about Jesus. He also apparently had a background in mathematics, and he pulled this mathematical term and brought it over into the theological realm to say, hey, this can help us understand what God was doing. And it comes down to how do we define what makes a set or a group? How do we define what makes a group? What's the framework? What are the boundaries around it? And there's kind of two big ways of how do you define this. And under the old covenant, the law of Moses is described as what would be known as a boundary set. A boundary set is a group defined by rules that determine who is in and who is out. It's about saying, you know, you've also heard like, um, you've heard of jokes based on this. There's two kinds of people in the world, those who like coffee and those who don't. Well, there's more than two types of people in the world, but if all you care about is liking coffee or not, you could break it into two groups. But a boundary set is always determined by the perimeter. It's determined by the fence points, who's inside the fence and who's outside the fence. And that was part of the purpose of the Old Testament law, was to set the boundaries, to set the fences of who's in and who's out. Now, part of the purpose of the law was also to reveal who God is by having those boundaries. But under the new covenant, under the way of faith, it's what's called a center set group. So a center set is a group that includes everyone who is moving towards a well-defined center. So a center set group, in fact, breaks away the boundaries and the fence points and defines it this way by asking the question, am I moving towards Jesus or away from Jesus? So a center set says there is a center of gravity in the middle that is drawing everything towards it. And what matters to be considered part of the set is are you moving towards or are you moving away? See, under a center set group, position doesn't actually matter as much. It's not about pointing at others and saying, are you in or are you out? It's about saying, what's the trajectory you're on? What's the path you're on? And the path towards the center, that well-defined piece of knowing who Jesus is and being in a relationship with him, our path may not be linear. In fact, all of our paths will look different because we are all different. We've all had different experiences. We all have different backgrounds, different histories. So what does it mean to be moving towards Jesus? If that's what being in a growing relationship is, it's about motion. Are we moving towards Jesus or away from Jesus? What does that look like? And so I want to start with two kind of foundations of discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus? And first is to say this, that discipleship is an intentional choice. No one can force you to follow Jesus. No one can force you to encounter his love or his presence, his grace or his mercy. No one can make that happen. It's a choice that every single one of us has to make at some point. It's up to us to choose, do I want to be moving towards Jesus? Do I want to be understanding who he is? Do I want to be going in this direction? And the second one is that disciple-making happens in relationships. It is incredibly difficult to be a disciple and be isolated and cut off from everyone else. 
In fact, being in relationships with one another, I think, is, is basically mandatory. Because if you think of it this way, if you live as a hermit, if you have no relational connection with anyone in any way, you never have any need to learn grace. You never have any need to learn compassion or forgiveness. Because you have no one to offend or be offended by. You never actually have to work through any relational problems. But it's when we work through relational problems, when we work through difficult circumstances, when we work through difficult things that happen in our lives, that's actually when each one of those is an opportunity for us to be growing closer to Christ, to be growing in his character, to be growing to be more like him. Because if Christ is at the center of our center set, if Christ is what we're all trying to move towards and become more like, we actually need opportunities to put that in practice. But how do we work through this? And so I think a zero-guilt approach to discipleship starts with discovering how did God design you to connect with him? Each one of us have different personalities. We have different spiritual gifts. We have different things of how we connect with God. And so one of the things that often happens in a message about discipleship is someone up here prescribes, this is how I connect with God, so isn't that how you should too? And I'm not naive enough to assume that's true. All of us will connect with God in different ways and have different practices and things that help us on that journey, whether it's linear or not, but help us be taking steps and being on a trajectory towards Jesus. And so I'm going to list five of them of spiritual practices that I find are helpful. And each one of us is going to have different ones on this that we would say, yeah, that's the one that helps me know who God is. Now, I'm also not saying this is an exhaustive list. There are more to this list than I have room for on the screen to put up. And there's more ways of connecting with God. But I want you to kind of consider these as like broad categories. And no one is superior to any other one in this list. But these are things that we can say, do I want to do that? Because I think it can help me go closer to God. I think it can help me be in that growing relationship where I'm taking a step closer to him. And so the first one I'm going to put up, and I'm just kind of putting titles on this. I'm not saying anyone is superior to another. But the first one, and this is one that is for me, is intellectual. I really like studying and learning more about God. In fact, I always feel like I am growing in my faith the most when I'm pushing myself to read books more often when I'm pushing myself to spend more time studying scripture and seeing how things connect because what it reveals to me is all the ways that God has been working to try and draw people towards himself. And so for me, I actually feel closest to God when I'm studying. That might not be your preference and that's okay. But I think one of the things that helps all of us is when we choose to study God's word, when we choose to study theology, when we choose to study what he's done, it can help us see God's love clearer. Another one is worship. Worship just means to ascribe worth, to understand the worth and value of something. And so when we talk about worship, we're talking about understanding God's value to us. And there's also a reflective piece that in worship, we actually understand how we are valued by God. And worship often leads to an experiential connection with God, a piece where you're experiencing the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. And this is something that can be together, like we do on a Sunday morning when we gather here, or it's also something you can do alone. 
something you can do by yourself. And maybe your worship doesn't involve music. Maybe it's art. Maybe it's poetry. Maybe it's spending time singing along to a worship album or something in your car when no one else is around to hear you sing because you think you're not that good of a singer anyways. That would be me. There's a reason I'm not on the worship teams. But that piece of that experiential connection helps us see God's love and draw us closer. People who are musicians often will feel like it's when they get to use their gifts and abilities and talents that they'll feel close to God. Another big one is prayer. Prayer is simply communicating with God, speaking to him, sharing with him what's going on. But prayer is also listening. And do we understand and accept that God can speak to us through prayer? That the Holy Spirit can be prompting and nudging and guiding us and actually communicating with us. Prayer is two-way communication, not just one way. And so prayer is something that can lead us and propel us in our relationship with God. Another one is serving. That when we choose to serve one another is actually a step of declaring God's love over other people because it's saying, I'm going to give some of my time, my abilities, my resources because I want you to experience God's love for you. In fact, we use this phrase often sometimes, being the hands and feet of Jesus that's taken right from Scripture. That we actually, when we are serving one another, we are essentially being Jesus with flesh on to that person to help them, to empower them, to care for them, to help them grow in their faith. And sometimes that's when our faith feels the most vibrant and most alive. And the last one I'm going to put up is this one, solitude. Spending extended time with God for reflection and understanding. Solitude is a practice of actually retreating out of the busyness of life. And solitude may not mean that you go away to a cabin somewhere or you go camping. It could be where you just take a spot in your house and you just be still and be quiet before God. And you take time for worship, you take time for study, you take time for prayer. But it's this practice of spending time with God for reflection and understanding, to kind of understand more about ourselves, how God has created us, but also about understanding God in a deeper way. Now again, no one of these is superior to another. And in fact, I think we need all of these in differing amounts. And sometimes it'll be for a season, that maybe for a season, worship is what helps you connect with God. And the next season, you might feel like you've hit a hurdle, you've hit a roadblock, and you need to go and take some time of solitude and build that into your life to take time to connect with him. Because... Each of these spiritual practices, and there's more than what's on the screen, are all ways of saying, I am choosing to be in a growing relationship with God. I want to invest in this relationship and not just assume it will always be there. So we ask this question, which of these spiritual practices could become a regular part of my relationship with God? What's something on that list that maybe I haven't done before that's maybe it's time to say it's time to try that, it's time to lean into it? How do we actually take the time to say, this is what I want to desire. How do I experience it with God? Now, I'm not trying to prescribe a set amount of time. I'm not trying to say, this is a list of five. You've got to check them off every day. That's not at all what I'm trying to say in this. But if we want to be on a growing relationship, if we want to be on a journey leading closer to God, are we choosing to do things that will intentionally lead us closer to God? Are we intentionally choosing to do things that will make us encounter God's love for us, that will make us encounter his plan and his word and his guidance and his direction? But this isn't an easy journey. 
In fact, at times in our lives, we will feel like we are going through a season of plateau or a a season of quiet or a season where God feels distant. And oftentimes that's inside us because the opposite of spiritual growth, I think, is spiritual apathy, is sometimes we may realize that we've reached a point where we just don't care about growing in our walk with God. And we may just say, I I just want to sit back and do nothing for a while. But it's up to us to say in that moment, and this is where we got to internally look at ourselves. This isn't something that someone else can do and point out to you. This isn't, and actually, to be honest, if someone else recognizes it and they take you out for coffee and they sit down and they just say, you're apathetic, your response will be, no, I'm not, and you're out. This is actually something we have to recognize ourselves. Because it's only when we internally recognize it that we'll actually want to do something about it. This is a tough one for someone else to say. But sometimes, if that person knows how to walk with grace and knows how to walk with love, knows how to care, they may be able to take you on a journey with them and say, hey, why don't you come along with me as this is what I'm doing that's helping me grow in my faith. And so I want to kind of end this message today on a self-reflection moment. And I'm going to put three questions up on the screen to think about. And the first one is this, am I moving toward Jesus or away from him? If I think about the trajectory of my life, if you even just say where I was a month ago or where I was three months ago, what's the difference from then until now? Am I in a, in a positive trajectory where I'm moving towards God or do I feel like I've been slipping back? And if we feel like we've been slipping back, we've got to ask this question, do I desire a deeper connection with God? Do I want that deeper relationship with him that God desires with me? Because if we don't decide that we want this, we can't force it to happen. This has to be an internal choice that each one of us makes. And the third one is this, am I in relationships that will help me to grow? Maybe this is a friendship. Maybe this is a life group. Maybe this is a group of friends. Maybe this is with your spouse. What relationships, what friendships are in my life? What am I doing to place myself in relationships where I will be inspired by other people's growth? Sometimes when we see other people growing spiritually, it's, it's natural for us to just be envious and say, well, that's them. Oh, why can't I have the relationship with God that they have? Well, the truth is nothing is stopping you but your own desires. Nothing is stopping you but your own choices. And we would much rather be able to say and point to, well, it's this thing in my life. You know, they have more free time than I do. That's why they have a growing relationship. Wouldn't we much rather make those excuses? And don't don't nod or stick up your hand on that. (laughs) But instead... When we're with someone who their faith is vibrant, when we're with someone who their faith is growing, when we see that happening, can we let that be a motivator? Can we let that grow a piece of desire for more of who God is? Because the ultimate truth is that God himself stepped into the world to make a path open to him that was available for everyone. It no longer was about what family you were born into, what nationality you were part of, if you followed the law, if you went through the process of becoming an Israelite, which you could do in Old Testament times, but it was difficult. God came to invite everyone into a deeper relationship with him. That is his purpose. 
That is the work that is not done yet. And that's why as a church we talk about how do we be a community of faith that is leading people into a growing relationship with Jesus. How do we help people encounter and discover Jesus? And how do we walk together to go deeper in our faith with him? Because there is always more of who God is that he wants to reveal to us. But sometimes we settle with what we have now and say, I'm good. And so I want to challenge you to think about these three questions this week. Am I moving towards Jesus or away from him? Do I desire that deeper connection that God desires with me? And am I in relationships that will help me to grow? Let me just end with a moment of prayer for us. God, you pursue us in so many ways. In fact, your word is filled with examples of when you walked on the earth and you sought out the people who thought they were the most broken. You sought out people who thought they were the furthest from you. You sought out the people that were despised and rejected by the establishments and by society and the way things were. Because you were making a point. You were making a point that no one is beyond the reach of your love. And so God, for us who are gathered here today and for someone listening to the podcast later, I just pray that you would impact and and impress on us your desire to be in a walk with us, your desire to be in a relationship with us. I pray that as we lean into who you are through any of the spiritual practices we've talked about today and even the ones we didn't talk about, God, I pray that we would encounter your love and your presence in a way that is refreshing in a way that opens our eyes to what you desire for us. And Lord, I pray that we would find the fulfillment that only comes from a relationship with our Creator. And so Lord, would you be working in us? Would your Spirit be leaning in and pressing in on us in each of these areas this week? In your name we pray. Amen. Folks, one last reminder. March 15th is our Vision Sunday. Plan to be here for that. At 11 o'clock, we're going to have communion as part of our morning service and our evening service at 6 o'clock. Hope to see you then, and I hope to see you next Sunday too. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.